What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Sports. It's me, Nick. I'm your host. And on this episode, we got some fun topics we're going to go over. And then a few more serious topics this week with me. I got uh, John, Brian, and Dom. They're going to be jumping in throughout all these topics. And then we'll get into our famous double take segment at the end. But always to start off our show, we're going to start off with our weekly rundown. There's just a couple topics that didn't make it into the main topic list here for today. But the first one I did want to kind of, you know, gloss over the, the Joey Chestnut he won his 15th Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest this past weekend. And I saw this cool um, post that he is now the – he holds the title for the most championship titles in a single event in sports history. So that that puts him ahead of uh, Rafa Nadal ah, – let me say that again. Rafa Nadal, uh, who won 14 French Open wins. Margaret Court, who has 11 Australian Open wins. Bill Russell, who has 11 NBA titles. Henry Richard, who has won 11 Stanley Cups, and even Tom Brady, who has seven Super Bowl titles. So I guess the question is for you guys in the comments, you know, where does this put him in the talks for the most winningest athlete of all time? And then uh, what would his legacy be when he retires? Because I feel like he's got to retire at some point because I don't know how long you can eat hot dogs as you get older without uh, without that hurting hurting you somehow. But Definitely a crazy feat. I think he only ate like 68 hot dogs, but that was because a fan got in the way and he actually choked, <laughs> put his arm around him and choked him out and threw him on the ground and then went back to eating hot dogs. So, Did you say only, only 68? Yeah, yeah. I think the record. Uh, yeah, only 68. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> but I think it was like 68 hot dogs in 10 minutes. I think he set the record. It was like what? 75. 68 in 10 minutes? Is it? I think it's 10 minutes. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it's not crazy. I mean, yeah, that's, that's an insane amount of hot dogs. And like I said, he, he only ate 68 because a fan like got up on the stage, I think to protest, he was protesting probably animal rights, I think. And he <laughs> literally, he literally put her in a chokehold and threw her on the ground and then went back to eating hot dogs. So <laughs> the man is dedicated to eating some, uh, <laughs> some wieners. Yeah, I was, was going to say wieners, but I was like, I don't know if that's appropriate. But uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Moving on to the uh, last thing I just kind of wanted to go over in the weekly rundown. This past, uh, I think, a couple weeks now, a couple weeks ago, the Lakers signed uh, Scottie Pippen Jr. and Sharif O'Neal to their summer league teams. If those names are familiar to you, they are the children of NBA legends Scottie Pippen and um, – sorry, they signed Sharif O'Neal, and he's the son of NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, both young men have not had the same start to their basketball careers as their father. Pippen Jr. Go, went undrafted um, after coming out of Vanderbilt. And then Sharif O'Neal had a bunch of health problems. He didn't really get to finish his college experience. And uh, he went undrafted as well. So another one for the comments, guys, is, you know, what's, what's their ceiling? Um, and then how many second chances do you think that they get in the league because of who their fathers are? Do you think they... Do you think they get a couple chances before it's too late, or do you think this is their final and only chance they'll get in the league? So go ahead and comment down below with your answers for that. But to get into our main topics today, I'm going to have John and Brian join me on this one. This one's a little bit more serious. Um, this past week, doctors came out with the diagnosis for Demarius Thomas. Um, they said that when, when he died, he had stage two CTE. Um, they don't have an official cause of death yet so they're not saying this was his cause of death but they're not saying that it's not so I guess kind of getting into the questions that I had for John and Brian were you know first 
what do we do as a society to help limit something like this going forward? And then second, how do we transition from this time where we love seeing big hits and, and viewed the game as like almost a war zone at times to growing to love a less violent game that may be less exciting at times, but definitely more safe, you know, for the mental health of players going forward. I'll, I'll let Brian start. I mean, sports, it's always been a very reactionary kind of, deal when it comes to these and death and everything so it's one of those we don't change the rules until bad things happen and sadly that's just how it's always <clears throat> in this case just to like for the fans to move on and everything and to get used to this i can see the nfl instituting stricter rules on helmet to helmet you know making it so it's a big deal than it already is but like for the fans to give you like an example, it's not gonna be exactly the same, but uh, F1, they have the what's called a halo. It basically goes around the cockpit, protects the driver's head. Before they had that, F1 and IndyCar had multiple drivers get injured and killed because stuff was going and hitting drivers in the head, killing them. And when they first instituted it, there was a big outrage. People didn't really want it. They didn't like how it looked. They thought it would change how things worked. And now over the last couple of years, we've seen multiple drivers survive horrible accidents that probably would have killed them if it wasn't for the halo. So it's not going to be as uh, overt as that with the NFL. But, you know, 10 years down the road, when they're doing studies and seeing that the number of players they're having, you know, related illness and stuff is way down, I think the fans will understand why they're changing the rules and, you know, maybe making it a little safer because, I mean, NFL people love seeing big hits, racing people love seeing big crashes, but nobody wants to see, you know, injured or die from anything. So I think it's just down the road, once they institute things, people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know, before I kick it over to John, I think for for me, the, the biggest thing that would fix this is is limiting contact at a young age. I, I think that's that's really where we're at at this point. Um, when you kind of think about contact football, it, even when I was a kid, it, it's <laughs> we started contact football as as young as like fifth graders, so and, and sometimes even younger. So I think that that's something that they've tried to limit over time, but I think we need to be a little bit more drastic about it and maybe limit contacts until high school, maybe even limit contact until 10th or 11th grade, you know what I mean? Try to limit the amount of, of head, you know, trauma that can be caused to somebody. And, and hopefully that's less, that's less hits to the head. And, you know, in your, in, I guess, in your football career, um, whether that's, you just play high school or college, or you go on to the pros, I, I think that would be a big thing for me to change um, going forward. But John, what do you think about this? And uh, what do you think about the two questions that were proposed well you know i i really think it starts with the youth you know you tell you get kids like you said that are playing tackle football at seven eight nine years old teach them how to tap tackle correctly teach them how to not use their heads um but i, I think it starts with the youth because eventually those young kids are going to get older and i mean get older and they're going to be the next generation of of NFL talent or college or high school football or whatever you, they might be. So I, I think it really starts with the youth. When, when my dad, my dad's like, I think 60 or 61, he was taught to hit people in the head, head to head co contact. I mean, that was just something that was like the norm. And, and that's what he had been doing since he was 
eight or nine years old when he started playing football. Even when he was in college, played, I mean, he played it like he played John Carroll. That was what was taught. And, you know, concussions weren't, you know, a, a big thing. I mean, they, yes, they happen, but, you know, one of the, I think the stigmas with concussions are, oh, you know, if you come out of a game, if you have a concussion, you're a wimp. Uh, I think we need to get away from that stigma. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, like I said, I, I, I think, I think a lot of what you said, John, about, about educating them how to hit properly is definitely, um, is definitely something they need to do. But like I said, I, I think limiting that contact is going to be something that provides, um, I guess that insulation in, in, in less, less opportunity for trauma to be given to the brain. So I think if, if you limit how much, like how much kids play um, tackle or contact football, especially in their developmental years in, you know, in college, when I, you know, I would take classes for developmental psychology or, or adolescent psychology and stuff like that. They, they taught us that, you know, from the point that you're until your, your brain's pretty much developing until you're in your early twenties. So, so you, you taking those hits and taking those bruises on your brain and rattling it around, it doesn't, it, first of all, it doesn't help with the development. It might stun it. It might cause different things to happen, you know, that you didn't think that weren't supposed to happen. And it causes that trauma and it builds up over time, especially like, I mean, think about how easy it is for kids to, to get injured. It's because their bodies really aren't fully mature yet. And it's the same with their brains. So I think it, like I said, I, I would even, you know, go for limiting contact until high school, maybe even middle of high school. Um, just teach them the fundamentals of the game and stuff like that. I think that would be, you would still, you would still get the athletes out of that. You would still get all, you know, the growth out of that and stuff like that. But I think that would probably be one of the better case scenarios that we would just have to live with and grow with. Uh, Dom, you wanted to jump in on this one? Yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, the human brain isn't really done developing till like what you said, 21 or like I, early twenties. I think they said like so, some, some, sometimes for men, like we're not like our, our bodies aren't fully developed, they say, until like 25. So, I mean, that's, I don't know. I think women are a little bit younger because I think they're pretty much fully developed by the time they they hit the late teenage years, early 20s. But So yeah. at that point, do you not have contact football until college? Because at that point, like your brain's still kind of developing, but it's kind of yeah. done for the most part. Because like, like you don't want to, you don't want to mess with brain development, you know, because that's going to, it's going to mess you up for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, you could do that, but I think, I think you would, but you would also set at a disadvantage. You know what I mean? Cause by that time, everybody is so, is so fast and so strong when they get to college that if you don't have them playing tackle football, at least a couple years before that, I think you're going to have more injuries because people aren't used to doing it. You know what I mean? So I think, I think if you teach the fundamentals and then maybe by the time kids get to like, maybe their freshman year of high school, they're not allowed to play tackle football, but they're allowed to be a part of the team and maybe do like some flag football or something like that. And then by the time they hit 10th, 11th and 12th grade, that's, that's when they start doing tackle football. So that brings them in, you know, to where they can go play college. And then if they make it to the pros after that, I think, I think that would be a better, a better stepping stone. Cause that would give you, you know, two or three years of, of, you know, learning the fundamentals for tackling and stuff like that. And you can teach them tackling drills throughout their adolescence as well, but they just won't be doing it on the field. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, I always thought the human mind was like space in a way. We only know about 30% of how the brain works, which 30%, that means you have 70% of the brain that we have no idea how it works. So 
Um, I think, you know, if we have, if we develop more research and studies to how, how the brain works, this would also restrict things like not restrict or um, make concussions and brain damage less, less happen less and less. Well, you know, I, th- I think maybe this is a topic we'll try to dive to maybe in a little bit more um, later on down the road. Maybe we'll try to do some more research and bring that to you guys. Maybe we'll we'll bring that over to our YouTube channel and, and kind of dive deeper into something like that and see, you know, more of the research that goes into it, because definitely stuff that that we've heard of and that we know a little bit of information about, but not a lot as well. Okay, we'll okay. Hmm? Yeah, uh, I got a question. Why do you don't hear about this stuff with like MMA guys or boxing box boxers? Why is that? Why do you guys think that is? I'm sh- I'm sure it's there. I just yeah, but you don't hear about it. You hear about it with like with the NFL and football, but like I, I don't know. I mean, I have to look that up and let you. Is, this is probably what I'll say is like I think there there I, there's probably got to be a science behind it, but I'm sure that there are less guys that can. So like when you talk about the force of, of two grown men running full speed, full strength at each other and hitting each other, I think that there's not as many guys that can create that power with a punch. You know what I mean? I think there's very few people that have been able to do that, especially when you talk about boxing with, I know that the gloves, like they're padded, but it doesn't really do much sometimes because it's still a hard punch, but I don't think mm-hmm. that, that, I don't think the force is still there. And I don't think like a lot of times with concussions, it's not, it's not necessarily the hit that gets you. It's the way your head snap backs in the way that your brain kind of, you know, shifts in there or hits the side of it. So I think that's, that's a really big reason why like you get a lot more guys within maybe hockey or football or rugby, you know, that are, we're seeing more signs of this in, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of guys within the boxing and MMA world that, that if they, if they went into their brains after they died, that they would be able to see that as well too. But that's the only thing I can think of is that it's not as prominent is because that, that force is just not the same um, in that. We do want to keep moving onto our next topic here. Um, John's going to be on this one with me. And this is a little bit more of a serious topic as well too, but also kind of like a really cool topic and um, something that we can champion as, as a country um, with when it comes to diversity. And if some of you guys don't know, uh, a person by the name of Mike Greer has become the first black GM in NHL history. And if you don't know much about hockey, there's not very many, um, I would say, black players in general to play the sport. It is definitely growing within like the diversity in that way is growing. Um, So I guess my question, you know, for for John here is in a sport that has diversity when it comes to players, coaches and front office staff from different countries. But that's where the diversity really kind of ends. Like I said, you know, what does this mean for the sport of hockey going forward? Well, I, I think it's a positive. Anytime, you know, and, you know, you have a gay athlete or African-American athlete or a woman that's a coach, I think it's it's good. I, I think it's good for society as a whole. And I think it's good for the sport. I, I, I don't see any real negatives in, into the situation. I, I think, you know, the more we expand that horizon of having diversity or integration or going over the, um, the gender lines, if, I'm not sure if that's the right way to call it. I, I think it's all positive. Um, but, you know, we still have a lot to learn. 
we still have a lot. I mean, the United States is a melting pot. So, you know, we're, we're going to have our issues with race. We're going to have our issues with sexuality or sexual orientation. But I, I think it, whether it happens in society, like we have a, a woman president or a black coach or a woman referee or a gay athlete, I, I, I think it's all good. Good. I, I don't I mean. There's obviously going to be people that are going to be like, no, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want that on my team and whatnot. You're always going to have those kind of people, but I, I, I see nothing but positive about it. What do you guys think? I agree. I think that this is a huge step for the NHL. Like I said before, I think that with a sport that has been predominantly white, I mean, I think we can say that because like I said, there's not very many people of color within, within the sport of hockey. So I think that them, you know, the sport of hockey in, in general, expanding um, and, and adding more diversity and, and different voices um, and different people into their organizations. I think that that's something huge. I think the NBA has done a phenomenal job with that when it comes to, you know, female coaches or female ownership or GMs. Um, the NFL is, is starting to push for that as well, too. So I think that that's something, you know, going forward that I would like to see more of that in all sports. Like John said, I think there's nothing wrong with with adding diversity and, and you know, growing growing the, the different types of people that are part of your organizations. Right, we're going to go ahead and move on to our next topic here. I'm going to go ahead and bring Dom in. And the next couple of topics here, we're going to talk about baseball and then soccer. And, and Dom is kind of our, our little bit more of our expert in both of those topics here at the podcast. So first, we're going to talk about some baseball stuff. And I saw something, you know, on Instagram the other day that had this caption where it said the new CBA for the MLB allows the commissioner to add legends to the all-star game roster, which I thought was definitely interesting. Um, but I just don't know, I guess, in my mind, what capacity they would really serve in the festivities. So I guess for you, Dom, like first, is this something that fans really even want? And then again, like I said, is, what kind of capacity would they even serve in the festivities? Um, well, I don't, I don't know if fans really know if they want it because I don't think anyone knew that this could be a thing until it came out like what a couple days ago um, that the commissioner was thinking about adding Albert Pujols into the all-star game because obviously he's a legend and he's retiring at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I think it's okay for the commissioner to just appoint, you know, retiring legends to an all-star game. I, I think the all-star game should be, you know, based on your merit for that season. So, you know, yes, Albert Pujols is a legend. And I think that they should do like a ceremony for him at the um, All-Star game. I don't know, maybe being, I, it, it depends on how he's appointed. If he's taking a roster spot from someone that potentially might deserve it, then I'm against it. But if he's just like an extra man on the roster that doesn't really play, he's just kind of there like ceremonially, then I'm kind of okay with it. But I don't know. I, I think the all-star game should be based on merit for that season. Yeah, no, I agree. I think something that would be cool, maybe if they did, if, if he, if he were to add, like, it depends on how many, you know, like people are retiring that year or whatever it may be. Um, but if there were like maybe three or four guys that, that obviously didn't take a roster spot that were kind of brought in, they were recognized maybe before the all-star game happens and then throughout all of, you know, all-star week or weekend or whatever it may be, maybe they, um, they were some of the main commentators that were going on. They could do some cool like interviews. You know, they were basically talking over what was going on in the game. I think that would be something that would be pretty cool and different. Um, and that would be something that I think would add a lot of value to 
all-star you know the all-star festivities in general because it's not something that we normally get where you get like actual players that are kind of being a part of the broadcast and stuff like that that are in that season currently but might be retiring in the next couple years so I think that that would be something fun but to move on to the next topic it is a little bit more of a of a home topic here we're going to talk about our Columbus crew so if a lot of you guys don't know the Columbus crew recently brought in a man by the name of Cucho Hernandez, He's, uh, he recently played for Watford FC, and the crew brought him in for $10 million. Now, this by far is the biggest move that the Columbus crew have made in their history, but it is not the most money spent on a player in MLS history. So Atlanta United and Toronto FC hold four spots each on the list of the most expensive incoming transfers for the MLS. I think that's like the top 15 um, and I think the most expensive was like 16 million. So the majority of this has happened over the past 10 years. So there's been a very, inf- very big influx of money into the MLS. So, you know, first down, I would like to know, like, what do you think this signing does for the crew? And, and how do you think Hernandez will propel this team forward? And then secondly, you know, if owners in the MLS are willing to spend this kind of money or even more, what does this do for the league? Just, I guess, the moving forward and, Bit of a long-winded answer, but I think it's a fantastic move for the crew. Um, as you mentioned, he played for Watford, who have been relegated from the Premier League, so they're going to be in the uh, championship next season. So they're kind of at a point where they're kind of selling all their top players to get as much money for them as possible and you know potentially reinvest that money into the team. Uh, with that being said, he's kind of different from a lot of players that we've seen come over from Europe into the MLS being – you know, we see a lot of players at the end of their career over in Europe come over to the MLS because, you know, the competition not, isn't necessarily as good as what they face in Europe. This guy, he's, he's young. I think he's like 24. Um, I think he's going to step in and instantly be the best striker on your team. Um, you now that's his position. He's not really fast. He's, you know, pretty stocky. Um, Definitely stronger. So, you know, speed's not really his his thing, but, you know, his skill on the ball, his ability to shoot, I don't know. I, I think it's a good move. I, it definitely gives the crew a focal point to build around because um, it definitely took a little bit of a step back from their championship season. Um, yeah, I got, I got no complaints. I mean, you look at his stats from last year. Granted, he was playing for one of the worst teams in the Premier League. Um, played 25 games, still scored um, five goals, assisted on two. Um, you know, you look at his stats from La Liga. So he came over from La Liga in 2020-2021 into the Premier League. He's, you know, scored seven goals in his time in La Liga, still assisted on four. It's good to see, you know, assist totals from someone playing the forward position because it means he's still distributing the ball out to his teammates. He's not just being a ball hog, which I, I think obviously is, is what you want in a striker. I, I, I got no complaints about the move. I think it's good for the league. I think, again, it, it's also good. It, it's showing that one, the crew are becoming a kind of a destination for, you know, not the top talent in the world, but, you know, players that are younger, that have potential, they can get a lot of playing time and, and still face good competition in the MLS. And I, I think it's great for the MLS because they're trying to grow their brand and kind of shake the reputation of a lower league where, you know, aging European stars come to play out their career and, 
you know, young talent, once they get good, they go over to Europe. I think, you know, a talent like Hernandez coming over in really just the beginning of his prime, I think is a good move for the league. And it's, it's showing that the league is growing his reputation worldwide. Yeah, I agree 100%. Like I'm super excited to, um, to go to games and, and cheer for him. And, uh, and we'll have to think of some nickname. I, <laughs> I was watching the, or I, not watching, but listening to local uh, sports talk radio. And they, they said that his nickname has to be a, uh, has to be Cooch, but I think that we're going to have to figure out a different nickname because that's not – I don't know how good that's going to be. But um, Oh, um, one little correction. He's not 24. He's only 22. Yeah, he's, he's only like 22, 23 years old, I thought. so. Yeah, no, no he's 22. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a fantastic move. It gives them a guy that is young that they're going to be able to build around. He's going to be with the team for a while. Um, I don't know what his uh, contract is like with the crew, but this definitely gives them. He'll probably make a decent amount of money. So, Well, I I, I'm, I'm more wondering what the length of the contract is, but. I'm not quite sure. I, I don't know. I think he's probably finishing out whatever he was on before, and they'll probably give him some new deal here soon. But I, I mean. No, usually when you do a transfer, you negotiate a new contract. Oh, okay. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll figure that out in the coming weeks or something like that. Cause it is, it is still pretty fresh. I don't think he, I think tomorrow's the first time that he can be on the field with the team, I believe. So yeah. I mean, July 8th. It, um, but it's probably a, a four to five year deal. Yeah. So it'd be interesting. I mean, like I said, this is either going to be a guy that they're going to build around going forward, or this will be a guy that they hope to build his value and then turn around and um, sell him and then turn that into, you know, more players like him that are young well, like they could be on the, the team. The crew, the crew really aren't that kind of team that yeah. grows talent and then sells them for a pros, for a profit. I think this gives this guy is he's a guy that you want to build around. He's a young, talented striker, and I, like I don't care how good the rest of the team is. It you know if you don't really have a good striker, it's going to be difficult for you to win games. So I th- I think Hernandez is definitely the guy that you build the rest of your team around now. Yeah, for sure. And then, like, like I said, if the owners spend the money, I think this league could become a league that is um, regarded as a as a high quality league in the world. It just depends on if they're they're willing to spend the money. And I think they see that you know soccer is something that almost everybody can watch and enjoy, and and they love either playing every once in a while. So, I think that the the eyeballs are there, and and hopefully they'll spend the money and continue to grow and, and uh, progress this league. But Well, I, I think the biggest thing with the MLS is not so much money, it's retaining their young talent. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at a lot of the young players on this U.S. men's national team, they would be, you know, running this league right now, but hardly any of them play for the MLS. They all go out to Europe as, as quickly as they possibly can. Yeah. Well, I think, I think a lot of the money is out there too, because the well, yeah, there, there's there's more money, but the competition's better. Like, yeah, you know, they're they're getting opportunities to play in the Champions League, and they're playing in the Premier League and the Bundesliga, and all these other. Obviously, the, these are the best leagues in the world. So, it they're trying to grow their brand as individual, you know, players. You know, that's that's where you go. Yeah, definitely. Well, moving from uh, one growing league to another that is, well, I wouldn't say it's growing, but it's shifting. I think that's probably the the best word, and that is going to be college football. So 
you know, over the past weekend, we learned that USC and UCLA are joining the Big Ten, so they are going to be okay dra- traveling about 2,500 miles every single week to uh, to play teams in the Big Ten, but that is a pretty big move. Um, we'll go ahead and start with that one, Dom. You know, what do you think about this move by USC and UCLA, and, and how big is that for the Big Ten? From the Big Ten's point of view, it's huge because, you know, USC is one of the biggest brands in all of college football. And USC is, is also a pretty good program. Uh, for college football in general, I mean, honestly, with all this conference realignment and, you know, pretty much two super conferences emerging, I, I think it's bad for college football. I think it's, you know, ruining competition and it, it's ruining conferences. So now you're, ha- you're having these two super conferences and, you know, what happens to the Big 12? What happens to the ACC or the Pac-12? And it, what the, the national championship game every year is just going to be the champion of the Big Ten and the SEC. So what's the point of having the playoffs? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, that was kind of my second question with the super conferences and stuff like that. But I guess we'll go into the third question here. And, you know, I'll go ahead and ask it, but I'll answer first and then kind of see how you, how you like my, my viewpoint on it, Dom, and maybe what you would tweak or change about it. Um, but it's basically if, if given the chance to decide what college football should or would look like going forward, you know, what would your plan be? I, I think for me, I, I actually am leaning more towards, I don't like calling it a super conference, but I think that college football should, should lean into almost, if you guys watch, you know, Premier League soccer, I think it should lean on to that. I think that realistically every single year, Anyway, there is only five or six teams that really deserve to compete in the playoffs anyway. And I think that the talent disparity is definitely shown across college football. I don't think I don't think that you look at Ohio State the same way that you look at a team like Rutgers. You know what I mean? I think that that's that's just not the same thing. So I, I think at the end of the day, I think what I would do is I would take it and I would take the top 48 teams Um you could either do that by committee or you could do that by past ranking averaged out over the past five years, whatever you want to do. I think you take the, the top 48 teams and you put them into what would be um, six conferences. Yes. Six conferences. So that would be eight teams per conference and that would be 70 year games. And then you play the other five games for out of um, division or I guess division out of division uh, opponents and then you have a six or eight team playoff from that. I think that that would make the most sense. And then I think you take the rest of the teams that are in the comp that are in college football there, and you divide them into either a stage two or a stage three. And you could do a whole system where teams work their way up, you know, from stage three to two or one, depending on how recruiting is going. But I just, I don't, I, I don't really I don't care that the lesser teams in the Pac-12 or Big 12 or um, whatever it may be like, because those those teams are are never going to compete for a national championship. I don't want to say never, but they're not likely to compete for a national championship anyway. In in the the games and like I don't I don't want to watch Ohio State play Rutgers. That doesn't that I don't care about that. I, I would rather see Ohio State play quality opponents every single week and go out there and prove that they are the best program in the country. Like it would be, it would be amazing to see them have a schedule where they play Alabama, Michigan, Penn state, you know, if UFC gets back to where it is USC, 
you know, Georgia, Clemson. Like I would love to see a schedule like that because that would be, that would basically be us seeing, you know, the best play the best every single week. So that's, that's what I would do with it. Uh, Dom, what do you think about it? And then I guess. Well, what the, the only you know big problem that I have with that is, yeah, that's great for Ohio state fans and Alabama fans, but you look at the rest of college football in its entirety and, you know, you're taking a ton of money away from these smaller programs that really get a lot of their money from playing these bigger schools. But you're also ruining competition across the sport itself. Because now, like, you look at programs like a Utah and a Cincinnati that have grown into, you know, really good programs that, I mean, we look at Cincinnati, they made the playoffs last year as a non-Power 5 conference, or as a non-Power 5 conference yeah, but those- participant. But those, but those schools could work their way. Like I, I would, I would put Cincinnati, well, this, even Utah, in the top forty-eight schools that would be in that anyway. So, like I think from that point, you know what I mean. I don't, I don't know, and, and they could work their way up as well too. You know, and, and well, the the pyramid, there. the pyramid structure, it works in soccer because you can, you know, develop young talent. You can buy better players. There's no you know, youth squad development in, in college football. You're competing with, you know, bigger schools and schools, you know, that are the same size as, you know, your school and whatnot for the top talent. And if you don't get the top talent, then you have, you know, you, you're not spending more time developing players to grow your program. It's let's get the best players that we possibly can and, you know, try to win now. So if you create, you know, super conferences, then it's really just going to be Alabama, Ohio State, and you know Florida, and maybe like one other school that's going to get all the all the talent. But that's all. That's what it is now. That's literally it's Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, and Clemson. That's what it's been for the past. I mean, you you could say you could say that's what it's been since 2015. So I mean, at the very least, I mean, you've had other schools sprinkled in there: Notre Dame, maybe Oregon. Um, you know, like, but that's but that's it. Penn state has had a, had a decent run, you know, but, but, but that's about it. I mean, you're not, you're, you're seeing the same four or five teams every single year, get the best recruits, be the best in the country, put the most guys into the NFL. So basically what you're saying is like, yeah, I would, what you're saying is I, I would rather see Ohio state play Rutgers who has one NFL dude on their roster every year than I would rather them see, play actual competition and get something out of it. And for the money thing, I think that you could easily insulate all those other colleges. But if you if you align everybody and you do this system, then the money would be a trickle down effect. Basically, all all the media rights money would go into it, and you would make sure that those those schools in those other stages were being financially compensated. And I think that there would be enough money to go around for sure. I, I don't I don't see I don't. Yeah, but we, we we both know that that's not how it's going to happen. But it will happen. Like, I mean, think about it this way. Like, I mean, the only reason Rutgers makes as much money as it does is because the Big Ten makes all the money be even. If they didn't make it be even, Rutgers wouldn't even make close to the money that they make in the Big Ten, nor would nor would like Minnesota. Like that's that's every other conference divvies the money up based on, you know, what the historical programs are, the programs that do the best you know, yearly and stuff like that. The Big Ten's the only one that does it fair like that. So I think that there is there is a structure out there like the Big Ten does it where you make it, you make it so that it's fair. 
every, obviously everyone's not going to get the same amount of money, but you make it fair in order for those, those schools that aren't going to be in the main, you know, you could call it a conference or main stage. Um, they're not obviously going to make as much money, but they're going to be able to make enough for their programs to continue to be afloat and continue to recruit. And they'll just have to recruit better. And that's, that's all they do now. You're just basically making sure that you're getting the best competition, playing the best competition every single week. Yeah. I mean, I, I see your point. It's just, I don't think it's going to be good for the sport to see every year in the conference or in the national championship game, whoever won the big 10 and whoever won the sec, because you know, it's going to be Ohio state or Michigan versus Alabama and Georgia every year. And I mean, look at how college football was when it was Alabama Clemson for what, three straight years. But that's, I, but that's what I'm telling you. It, it's already like that. It's, it's, but at, at least now there, there's chances for other programs to make the national championship game. You know, oh. a couple of years ago, Oklahoma has made the, the college football playoffs a couple of years. Yeah, they but, all made- but Oklahoma was considered a more powerhouse, you know, team within college football. Obviously not now since Lee and Riley probably left unless they can salvage whatever it is. But Oklahoma was considered a more powerhouse program. So it's like, I, I, I get what you're saying, but we've, it's, like I said, for the past 10 years, it's been Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and Clemson with others sprinkled in over time, but it's been those four programs mainly. So I just, I don't see, I don't see a difference between just being like, okay, yeah, these are the best programs. We should probably make them play each other instead of, why why does why does Ohio State need to play Ohio University? Like other than making other than getting Ohio University a, a payday from it, there's just there's no reason behind it. Like Ohio State played Kent State a few years back. Like why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. It's not fair to Kent State to go out there and get demolished by the second team. Like that doesn't. That doesn't yeah, but mo- mo- most of their most of their uh, you know athletic budget came from that game. And I agree, and that's and that's why I think you in order for it to work, you would have to set a, the budget would have to be set up to where it insulates those programs. And it makes the most sense. I don't know, guys, let us know what you think. I think there's a lot of mixed feelings on it. I think a lot of people want it to stay what it was and, and have the, uh, and have the old rivalries and stuff like that. I mean, I, listen, the nostalgia factor of college football is something that we all love to watch and listen to, but it's just, it's not that way anymore with NIL coming into it and everything being a part of that, I think that there is a change coming and they need to, they need to create some unified, um, unified decision on what to do and stick with it. And if they don't, then it's just going to be the wild, wild west. And it's just going to suck to watch. It's not going to be fun. So like Dom said, at this point, we have two conferences that that's the only thing that matters. And basically you're just going to get a big 10 versus sec or ACC, right? No, SEC. No, SEC. Yeah, SEC championship every single year, so it doesn't matter. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode, guys. We're going to move into our double-take segment. Uh, For Brian, who hasn't been a part of the episode yet, and if you guys are listening to the first episode of Let's Talk Sports, for our double-take segment, we're going to go around and give our first thing and then go back around and give our second thing. And for those things, you can can talk about whatever you want. Just don't, uh, don't be too crazy about it. Um, but other than that, yeah, I talk about what you want. It could be about life. It could be about sports. It could be something funny. It could be a fun fact, whatever you want to do. So we'll go ahead and give Brian the first shot at it. And then we'll go Brian, Dom, John, myself, and then back around. Dan Snyder has been in and out of conflict a lot since he joined the, or became an owner in the NFL. And 
he's in more trouble this year. I mean, you know, more allegations of sexual misconduct than the commanders claims of, you know, him misrepresenting how much money his team made so they can kind of swindle the NFL. So I'm just going to go out and say, I don't expect him to be an NFL owner much longer. I think he's going to get kicked out, forced to sell. Okay. Dom, what's your first thing? I don't know. I I, I honestly don't really have anything. <laughs> nothing haven't crazy, really. Nothing crazy happened in life. You don't want to talk about your your cool promotion you got or whatever. I mean, it's not really a promotion. I'm just you know moving teams at work. Um, went to Kelly's Island you know a couple of weeks ago. If you guys uh, have an opportunity to go check out Kelly's Island, it's you know a pretty relaxing time. Um, pretty nice just to be on the water pretty much for the entire week or, you know, half a week that we were there. Um, yeah, honestly, not, <laughs> nothing too crazy. All righty. Well, there you go. Uh, John, what's your first thing? Well, I, I just have one thing. Um, my friends, Aaron and Elise Stoll got married, I think last Tuesday, and I am four for four on guessing baby genders for whatever reason. There you go. So, you got a so, talent. So, so uh, Aaron Dole and Elise, if you're listening, you hear it, heard it first on Let's Talk Sports. If you have any children, your first child will be a girl. Hopefully, I'm five for five on that, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And if I get any updates on whether they have children and whether it's a girl or a boy, I'll, I will definitely let you guys know and give you the heads up. And no, you heard it from me, Johnny Mock. You're going to have a girl. I'm four for four. I'm hoping I'll be five for five. We'll just have to wait and see. All righty. Well, when we when congratulations we to your around, friends. Uh, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. But no, when we bring it back around our uh, NFL pick'em for the for the season. Uh, you should go ahead and join that because I have a feeling you might be a little bit more successful than, <laughs> than we were. Okay. All right, uh, Brian. Do you have a second thing? Actually, I really don't right now. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well. Um, since nobody else has a second thing, I guess I'll just uh, I'll go into my I'll just give one thing. That way we stay consistent here. But I just went and watched the new Thor movie um, before we started recording this. I, I think it was uh, I think it was a pretty good movie. If you guys haven't haven't seen much of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think this is a movie that, you know, you might be a little bit confused watching. But I think it's a pretty solid movie that you could watch without really understanding most of what's going on. I think there's a lot of uh, emotion, a lot of funny stuff, a lot of action that goes into it, some cool stuff. I won't spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it yet, but it was a really solid movie. I really liked it. I think they've definitely progressed um, with how they made the Thor movies. And uh, and I know a lot of people are are a little bit uneasy with the direction that the MCU is going, but, but I'm pretty excited. I think there's going to be some fun stuff that they're going to go forward. So I really like that movie. So that was Nick's movie review of Thor Love and Thunder. Thunder, yeah. What would you give it out of 10? Um, I would, I would, I would give it an eight. I think an eight's a pretty good one. I think when you compare it to other Marvel movies, I don't think it was the best, but I think it was a pretty solid movie. I, I would give it like a 7.9 or an eight. Um, I think that it's definitely, I think most Marvel movies are around a 7.8 to an 8.1. I think there's very few that, that go above that, but I think that's still a pretty good score for a movie. But, you know, I, I think there's very few movies that can compete. Uh, Infinity War, Endgame, and then the, the most recent Spider-Man that we got. I think those are probably their, their top movies that they've done. Um, and I'm a big fan of uh, Captain America Civil War. I think that's a pretty solid movie as well, too. So, but yeah, I think, I think an 8 out of 10, I think that's a pretty solid score. So, all righty. Well, we definitely had a diverse episode 
today, guys. I, I thank you for, for coming on and uh, tackling these topics. Of, uh, some of them were a little bit more deep and a little bit tougher uh, than others, but, you know, I appreciate all you guys. I appreciate your your expertise in these topics and coming on and talking and having fun. So that's what the show is about. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, definitely check out our other shows. We recently dropped a, you know, a two minute drill episode that we haven't done in a while. Brian went ahead and, and hosted that one. It was really fun. We had some cool topics. We'll start doing those um, every Tuesday as well. Just a heads up for this show. We are going to change the release schedule of it. It's not going to come out on Fridays anymore. It's going to come out on uh, Tuesdays going forward for probably the next month and a half. Um, I, uh, I got a promotion at work, so I'm changing shifts. So I will not be able to record. Um, but the goal is to release on Tuesdays. We might talk internally and see if we need to change that or not. Um, but that is the goal moving forward. So again, thank you guys so much for listening and check out our other content. But as always, I am Nick. This was Let's Talk Sports presented by Deep Dive Sports, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you for listening to another Deep Dive Sports show. Make sure to follow deep.dive.sports on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can listen to all of our shows wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow our YouTube channel for more amazing content. Lastly, make sure you leave us a comment. We love hearing what you have to say. And as always... Until next time, you guys, sports listeners.